If you had told me back then that I would be doing what I'm doing at the end of my career, I would have never thought I would end up here. Of all the things that I've done in my life, a lot of it sounds pretty hard, difficult, dangerous. It was, but I will tell you the hardest and most difficult and dangerous thing I've ever done is, is get sober. When it comes to addiction, whatever you're going through, whether you're a police officer, firefighter, EMT, FBI agent, it doesn't matter. The shitty things are going to happen. That's called life. In recovery, we don't learn to change our circumstances. We learn to change how we react to those circumstances. If you're in recovery, you should celebrate it. You should not be ashamed of it. And you should go out and tell others because other people need to hear about it. Welcome to another edition of Respond to Resilience. Along with my co-host, Bonnie Rumley, LCSW, EMT, I'm David Dashinger. On this episode, we'll be speaking with Michael Van Meter of VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com about addiction, prevention, and treatment for first responders. We invite you to like and subscribe. Our YouTube channel, as always, is Responder Resilience. You can find us on Facebook, Responder Wellness Inc. We're on BBSRadio.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our website is RespondertV.com. We'll be back to speak with Michael right after this. In this family, more of us die by our own hands than by the hazards of the job. In this family, up to a quarter of 911 dispatchers have symptoms of PTSD. In this family, our mental health and wellness are in crisis while responders are quietly suffering. In this family, many struggle with job-related stress, burnout, trauma, sleep disruption, substance abuse, and marriage problems. In this family, we can help the helpers with vital information and resources, resilient strategies, and success stories of overcoming the obstacles. In this family, no one is alone. Welcome to Responder Resilience with co-hosts, retired Lieutenant David Dashinger, Dr. Stacy Raymond, and Bonnie Rumley, LCSW, EMTB. And we'd like to introduce Michael Van Meter, who has seen firsthand the devastating effects of addiction on the public, himself, and his profession. He began his career as a helicopter pilot in the U.S. Navy. After eight years, became a corrections officer, then a Washington, D.C. police officer, and then an FBI agent. In 2010, Michael became an instructor at the FBI Academy, and in 2013, he created a course titled Leading at-Risk Employees, geared toward police executives to help them understand alcoholism, prescription drug abuse, PTSD, suicide, and domestic violence as it relates to policies and procedures for their agencies worldwide. And we'd love to dive into that a little bit during our conversation. In 2019, Michael retired from the FBI, but his passion for helping others has continued. And he just completed his master's in addiction counseling from the Hazelden Betty Ford Graduate School of Addiction Studies. We'll talk about that for sure. And pulling from his professional and personal experience, Michael will be sharing his thoughts on all these subjects with us today. Welcome to Respond to Resilience, Mike. Uh, thanks, Dave. Uh, one one correction there. Mm. Um, I will be graduating from the Hazelden Betty Ford Graduate School of Addiction Studies in August, <laughs> if, all right. well. if all goes so well. So by the time this airs, you'll probably have a graduated. I hope so. I hope so. It's been a lot. It's been a lot. It was, there was a lot of hard work. It really was, but it was good. It was good stuff. Great. I'm, well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Good. We'll definitely share with us some of that too. Mm-hmm. It's right. nice to meet you, Mike. Thanks for joining. Yeah. Nice to meet you, Bonnie. Thanks, Thanks for having me. 
You're welcome. So the burning question, right, to get everything kicked off is what brought you to this line of work? Because typically there's a journey behind it. Yeah, yeah there, and thanks for asking. They, uh, it really was a long journey. If, if you had asked me, you know, many, many years ago when I uh, – and my career started in, in the Navy, actually. I went, you know, went into the Navy after college. And if, if you had asked me then – or if you had told me back then uh, – that I would be doing what I'm doing at the end of my career, you know, when I was in my mid mid fifties, I would have thought you were crazy. I would have never thought that uh, I would end up here, but uh, this is where uh, my higher power brought me. And uh, as we learn in the, and we'll get more into what I mean by the program. Uh, I, I'm, I'm learning to, to just roll with it and, and realize that my, only purpose on earth at this point is to be of service to other people. And that's, that's where I've called been called to be based on my experiences. And uh, I, I never thought that was going to happen, but that's why we're here. So why, why am I here? And if, if you'd like, I can kind of go through the story a bit Please do. Uh, because yeah. it, uh, I'll just say up front that uh, I am in recovery and uh, I will also say that of all the things, you know, you, you kind of heard my resume there of all the things that I've done in my life. A lot of it sounds pretty hard, difficult, dangerous. It was. But I will tell you the hardest uh, and most difficult and dangerous thing I've ever done is, is get sober. Hmm. And if, if you're watching this program and you're struggling right now or if you're in recovery yourself, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I've I've interviewed some um, tremendous people in my, in my life because I have my own podcast now, some very, very successful people in all of them to include a person that this week that is very, very well known. Uh, says that recovery is the hardest thing they've done in their life, and and, and it really is. And, it, and if you're uh, sober today, congratulations, because it, it's very very difficult. Uh, if you're struggling with addiction, uh, just don't give up. Don't don't give up five minutes before that miracle happens. But what happened with me is my my presenting issue is alcohol. Very very common in our profession. And when I say our profession, I'm talking about first responders in general. I don't just necessarily mean FBI agents, police officers, corrections. That's my world, but EMTs, firefighters, dispatchers, corrections officers, uh, uh the support, all the the support personnel that we have uh, in the this uh in this this business. It's it's very very stressful. And uh, I really liked in the introduction there when they talk about uh, in, in your introduction on the show, it talked about dispatchers, and I do a lot of work with dispatchers, and dispatchers uh, are subjected to all sorts of trauma. They're just bombarded with it, and I'm glad that we're we're doing more work for those folks as well. But alcohol is is my issue, and I want to kind of point out that right now that was my issue, but understand I was in a profession or professions that really restricted what we could do, what we could take. Uh, I started out life as a helicopter pilot in the Navy. And uh, in, in fl- it, when you fly in the military or when you fly in general, even if you're an airline pilot and you're, you're listening, you know what I'm talking about, you're very restricted in what you can do. In the Navy, if we took aspirin, we had to go to get permission to take mm-hmm. aspirin. So the only thing that we were allowed to do was drink. That was the only thing that, that was legal. Um, and I not... <laughs> And I had not had those restrictions in my life. Who knows where I would have been? But alcohol was was it. Now, um, I, I do want to say that addiction is addiction is addiction. And what, what I suffer from is the disease of addiction, not necessarily the disease of alcoholism, but the disease of addiction. And that's important to understand because uh, – you know, it's not like I can just stop drinking or drugging and then go start gambling or start looking at pornography or uh, get into all sorts of other uh, issues. That's an important distinction to, to make. If you suffer from addiction, 
addiction is what you have, and you have to be very, very careful with that, and we have to be mindful of that. So uh, growing up, uh, I want to demonstrate that there's a real uh, – people that suffer from addiction also have what's known as a, a, a genetic pre-uploading or pre- genetic predisposition. If you have a parent – and I was just looking at some stats uh, last night about this, as a matter of fact. If one of your parents um, suffered from addiction, you you are four times more likely to mm-hmm. suffer from the addiction uh, yourself. That was certainly true in my case. You know, my, my mom died from alcoholism. My dad has uh, uh, – all kinds of other uh, um, process addictions, and, and that's another discussion for another time. But the process addictions are addictions where you're not putting a chemical into your body. It might be like gambling, eating, although you're putting that in your body. It's still pr- considered a process addiction, uh, pornography, um, gaming, things like that. So if you have that in, in your line, which I do, and it even went to grandparents and, and beyond, then that increases the likelihood that you will have addiction. And that was certainly true in my case. Now, we couple that with uh, environment. So in stressors and things like that. So where I grew up, I grew up in the Tampa Bay, Florida area. And uh, this would be the mid, late 1970s, early 80s. And if you know anything about um, Clearwater, Florida, which is where I grew up, it's a retirement community. And so the retirement community that I grew up with, these were all World War II veterans, Korea, Vietnam, actually had some World War I veterans for a while. And that was a different generation. And that was the environment I grew up in. You know, these were hard people that grew up during the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. They went through, I didn't know, I actually didn't know an adult man that had not been in the military. That was the type of environment it was. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, these people didn't have hug rooms and safe spaces and they didn't sit around and talk circle. That's not what they did. They were 16, 17 years old and went to Europe or, you know, out into the Pacific and fought wars. That's what these people did. And they had survived the depression. Mm -hmm. What that meant was there was a certain mentality that they had that is wildly different than what we experience today. They, to them, you know, uh, drinking was what you did. Drinking is how you coped and you did it at a very young age because their attitude was if you're 17 fighting the Japanese, then you're certainly old enough to drink. And that's the way that it was. And so we started drinking when I say we, my brothers and I started drinking at a very early age. And it was just normal. You know, my family did it. My grandparents did it. All of the adult men, you know, knew I knew I was going to the military and I would listen to these guys talk about the Second World War. And drinking was always part of their stories. And, you know, in the early 1980s, when I was in high school, it was just a different environment, too. I mean, we uh, we did things in high school drinking wise that if my own children did that, I, I would be horrified. <laughs> I, I hear but that. Was, <laughs> I would be. You know, those are the days when you would. You know, you would dr- you'd be driving home in a blackout drunk, and the the sheriff would pull you over, and it would be like, "Where are you going, boy?" And I'm going over there. Well, you better get home. Better not see you again tonight. And you know, those days are over. Uh, th- but that's the way that it was back then, and that was high school. And so then I go off to college. I went to the University of Florida, which uh, was a, it was a party school. And uh, I partook in that. And then I went into the Navy, which uh, had, you know, the military in general, but the Navy certainly, and then aviation in the Navy, which has a a history of of drinking. And this is, uh, I was in the Navy during uh, the first Gulf War, Desert Storm, Desert Shield. And and it was just, it was the culture. You know, I I just recently saw the new Top Gun that came out. And even in the movie, even in this movie, in this day and age, you notice many of the scenes are centered around the bar and drinking, right? There, that's that was that's just the way. It was. That's the military, mm-hmm. or at least it was when I was in. But based on the movie, apparently nothing's changed. 
And our attitude was, you know, we flew, we worked hard, worked hard as hell, but we played hard too. And when we were, in fact, it was mandatory. You know, if we, if the commanding officer, if we were in port and, and the commanding officer was going over to the officer's club, uh, this was not like, you know, a good idea to go, you were going and you were going to drink. I didn't know anybody that didn't drink. And then we would couple that with, you know, we would drink hard. We'd have, uh, you know, just a lot of blackout drinking, uh, which I know now is a sign. That's not normal. If, you, if you're drinking to blackouts, it's not normal, but it was normal to us. And then you would go on deployment for a long period of time. So I, I think that kind of masked, you know, the, the problems. But when I went to my shore tour, because in the Navy, you do sea tours, shore tours. And for officers, a lot of times that you're going to you're not going to be flying. You're going to be off uh, doing staff work. And that's for that's just to develop you as an officer. But the reason why I mention that is now all those restrictions that you have for flying aren't there because you're now you're on a staff. And I remember we, being in, in Kefovic, Iceland. Uh, we still had a base there at the time and I was part of the staff. And I had been. This was, if you're alcoholic and you're listening to me, you, you you can probably relate to this. There's two times in an alcoholic's life that are very memorable. And that was when you realize that alcohol was the solution to everything. And then the time when you realize that, that alcohol was about to take everything from you. Mm-hmm. So when I was in Iceland, uh, I remember going to uh, one of my neighbors. He had he was having like a dinner party over at his house. And he was a, he was a big wine drinker. And I want to mention, I had never had wine in my life up until this point. I'm probably like 32 years, 30, 31 years old at this point, because I had always been told by the old World War II vets that uh, only women drink wine. Men drink beer and whiskey and women drink wine. And so here I am at this guy's house and he gives me wine and I'm drinking and it was red wine. And so for those of you that are listening and that want to do a PhD thesis, maybe you can study what the uh, physiological effects are, the biochemical effects of uh, red wine is, because I don't, because there's a unique, it affected my body in a unique way that I've never experienced with anything else. And interestingly enough, if you go to enough AA meetings or work in a treatment center, I hear a lot of people say that red wine was their drink of choice. You always think it's going to be vodka, and it is in a lot of cases, but red wine just seems to have something about it that is different than, than other, other drinks. But when I when I drank this red wine, it was like this feeling that was unique. And to me, that was like the solution. If I had a good day, that was, just, you know, it'll make it better. Mm-hmm. If I was having a bad day, it would make it better. That was the solution. And that's when it started, like, more often. And addiction is progressive. It progresses over a period of time. And if you have it, if you have addiction, it progresses over a period of time. It gets worse over a period of time. It does not get better, and there are no exceptions to it. And the problem with with us is that we all think that we're an exception, and we're going to prove uh, there will be people out there that will try to prove what I just said wrong. And hopefully they don't die trying, mm-hmm. but but that's the way that it is.
So I, I come back to the United States. Uh, I had always wanted to go into law enforcement. I, I knew I was going to go into the military, but I also wanted to be in law enforcement. And so decided that was the time to do it. Got out, uh, worked in corrections for a while, but I knew that that was a stopover job. Uh, learned a lot. Great, great people. Tough, tough job, by the way. Hmm. And then I went to, I gave up that tough job to go to an even tougher job. And that was to be a, an officer in, in Washington, D.C. in the hmm. mid 90s. And if you're familiar with Washington, D.C. in the mid 90s, it was, uh, I, I was safer in the war zone, I think. Uh, well, I know, I know it was. It was, a, it was a rough place to work. But this is where the progression really kind of took off because then we have those environmental factors that, that started to come in in the lifestyle and that's shift work you know you uh our department at the time you would rotate between um dave actually as a new person you didn't see dave very often unless you were in court uh-huh. but evenings and midnights and and you would rotate uh on on those and, and so your circadian rhythm is off you you can i, I really don't know why they do that <laughs> if you're listening to this your police executive you really need to work on that it's horrible for your health but anyway it was it was shift work and um that department um, you know, so you hear it often said that police work is tons of boredom, uh, sprinkled with periods of absolute panic. Um, uh, that was not my experience. My experience was just panic all the time. There were no, um, in Washington DC in the mid nineties, there, there were no, there was no sheer boredom ever. It was, you know, you're talking about a department where it's man with gun, man with gun, man with knife, man with gun, man with a gun and a knife, and he's naked and running down the. But that's your that's your call sheet <laughs> in that that city. So it's an adrenaline dump, 100% adrenaline dump, 100% of the time, and that's also not good for your body, by the way. And you know, I thought like a lot of people did. You know, how how do you go home and just turn that off and go to sleep? You know, it's not like you go home and say, "Hi, honey, how was work? Oh, great. How about yours?" Yeah, uh, you know, we, dead babies and destruction and chases and, and she, hey, love you, kiss, kiss, good night, lights out. It doesn't work that way. You can't turn it off. And what what I thought, and a lot of people, a lot of people still think, is you know, alcohol helps me sleep. You know, we would we would hear that in the treatment center when patients would come in. Uh, alcohol helped me sleep. Actually, that's not true at all. It disrupts your sleep. Uh, that's another discussion for another time. But, that, but again, I didn't know anything better at the time. And so what I would drink, and like I said earlier, addiction progresses over a period of time and never gets better. And then it started to progress. So that progression was long. It was sort of slow in my case, which is actually worse than it hit. If, you know, if this stuff had happened overnight, you know, you went from here to, destroying your life you would pick up on it very quickly but it it just just picks away very slowly Mm -hmm. and that's exactly what it did and um eventually i got picked up by the fbi as an agent and i went in and for me that's where you know i don't know if the new environment well all these things contribute to it but the progression had definitely started and i went from a, a a lifestyle change and this is not to be condemning of my organization or the people that were in it remember uh, it, when it comes to addiction, and I and I want anybody that's listening to this, I, I want you to understand that whatever you're going through, whether you're a police officer, firefighter, e, you know, EMT, FBI agent, it doesn't matter. Um, there, shitty things are going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. You're going to work with horrible people. You're go- That's called life. And what we learn in recovery is not we don't learn to change our circumstances. We 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 learn to change how we react to those circumstances. Mm-hmm. 
And in my case, when I made the switch from police work over to federal law enforcement, I, you know, I really didn't like it. I didn't like it all that much. I, I'll, I've tell people today that the most fun I ever had in my life, the, the most job satisfaction was in the police department. I, I just, I love street police work. I loved the, I loved the, re, I just loved it. I loved everything about it. And when I went to federal law enforcement, it was it was a very different environment. It was, you know, you got to remember, I'm I'm in a police department where I'm, you know, I'm making life and death decisions every single day with without even consulting anybody. I mean, it's it's just looking back on it, it, it is just a tremendous amount of responsibility with very little supervision. But uh, I, I liked it. I, I liked engaging the public. I, I if you're a people person like I am. That's a great job to have, very destructive job, but it's a great job to have. And then when you get into federal law enforcement, it's a lot of very long-term investigations, uh, becomes much more political, um, a lot more of the the stress. You see, when in the department, the stress was th- the bad people on the street and the people trying to harm you. Okay, we all get that. When I went to fa- law, federal law enforcement, the stress for me became – the politics, you know, in the yeah, office, you yeah. know, not necessarily, and again, I'm not trying to condemn anyone. I'm just, I'm just saying it's different in that your stressors come from, Hey, this guy's trying to take my case. This guy or gal is uh, taking credit for something they didn't do, or they're trying to encroach. It's just different in it. And it's the stressors are different. And I didn't like it. I, I didn't like that at all. And by then I sort of felt, uh, and we talk about this in, in the graduate program I'm in about career development and lifespan development, your age development. You know, by this time I'm in my mid thirties, late thirties, going on early forties, a couple of kids, my wife had left her job um, to support what I was doing hmm. and stay home with the kids. That was, again, that's the stage of life that we were at. And I felt trapped. I felt like, you know, Hey, I really enjoyed the police department. And I'd like to go back, but I can't because I have, you know, the family's counting on me. I'm the I'm now the provider. Every, my wife gave up what she was doing to support me on this this goal, and it was all it was all really good stuff. But I felt trapped, and I think that in my mind, in my story of how my addiction progressed, that I just felt sort of hopeless. And the way that I I found to deal with that was through alcohol, and it progressed. Now. And I'll just compress the story here that it compressed over time because really the details of who said what and what happened um, didn't – those specifics don't really matter for our purposes here today. It was just understand that it was progressive, and it, it got to the point to where it became noticeable, and and I finally had somebody at work over a long period of time. Um, mm-hmm. It went on for a while before somebody actually had the guts to say something to me. And we'll probably talk a bit more about that, but they said something to me about it. And that threatened the one area that I was not willing to give up. I And, and for addicts and alcoholics, it's we, you will feel pain. And it's just a matter of where is that pain going to come from? And what are you not willing to give up? And for me, that was my job. And for others, they're willing to give everything up. But for me, what that meant was th- I felt threatened. Now, I never had disciplinary issues. I never got in trouble, anything like that. But I eventually raised my hand and uh, went to detox, uh, still drank after that, went to treatment number one and another detox, uh, still drank after that. And by this point, I'm starting to realize, hey, this 
like there was a point in there where I really wanted to stop. I, in the beginning, I think it was more, I was trying to fix the back problem I had, meaning I had my wife and I had my work on, on my back. And I just wanted to fix that back problem. Hmm. And truth be told it, at that time, if I had uh, gotten them off of my back and I could drink the way that I was drinking and get away with it, I, I would still be drinking today, but it just doesn't work that way. And it just gets too bad. You're starting to have health problems. I was having health problems. I'd never, I went from being a very, very healthy fit guy to now being very unhealthy, very overweight at that point, and uh, just all kinds of problems. So went to treatment a second time, but, and at this point, I really, really wanted to stop. I internally wanted to stop, and, but I couldn't. And that's when you realize, oh, wow, this is bad. This has taken over. Mm. And, and if you remember, addiction is a, a, a disease of the body and the mind, and the mind. And it's the disease that tells you that you don't have it. And there was a point where I become, they call this alcohol dependency, meaning I couldn't stop if I wanted to. I had to keep drinking. And you do reach that point. And I went to treatment again and then relapsed again. And by then I knew that it was bad. And that's when the uh, depression, remember, alcohol is a depressant. And so you're, you're depressed over the whole, you're depressed over a lot of different things. And then our solution is that we put this depressant on top of it. And then eventually it got to the point to where I was starting to have suicidal ideations, mm -hmm. which is very, very common. You know, we see that, uh, in fact, I almost expect it with patients when they, they come into the treatment center, it's that common. And that was certainly where, where I was. And um, it got to the point to where that seemed like a really, really good option. And that's when I, I realized I've really got to do, I got to take the suggestions and just start listening to other people. And, and I did. And I, it wasn't easy in the beginning. I ended up finding a, an addiction specialist, which is very important to do. Uh, I embraced in my, my chosen program that I, I, I'm still very, very active in is, is AA. Uh, there are other programs that are out there. I'm just, I'm just throwing out there that I'm an AA guy and threw myself into it. And took it seriously and, and really took the got a sponsor, uh, did all the different things that, that they suggest that you do. And shockingly, it worked. And here I am. And in, in August, God willing, I'll, I'll have uh, 10 years of sobriety. But now to circle back. And just, to, I, just to cut in there that yeah. um, this episode should be premiering on your 10-year anniversary of sobriety. So we want to congratulate you on, oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> on that beautiful accomplishment. But I can't drink between now and then, or else uh, we'll just throw no. all this out of the water. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, so while all this was uh, going on, I, I have to kind of, there's so many parts of the story, but just kind of get into the chase. But uh, I was an instructor at the FBI Academy, and uh, I specifically, I had moved over to what's known as the National Academy. And the National Academy is police executives. Uh, so it's chief sheriff or people being groomed to become chief or sheriff. And there's people from all over the world actually come to this, this program. 
And I was teaching a course at the time called Officer-Involved Shootings. And the premise of the course was, what kinds of programs, policies, procedures do you have for critical incidents with uh, your agency? You know, so let's, let's just say, for example, you have a shooting. So what does your department have to come around your officer, to take care of your officer, the family, et cetera, et cetera? But I had noticed that the course was not dealing with the after effects of that. The, you know, what if you were injured and you were given Oxycontin, Hydrocodone, Percocets, things like that? It wasn't dealing with that. And, and I was hearing from a lot of the students that they were firing. You know, so one day this officer is the hero and a year later they're firing the same person because they're now hopeful, hopelessly addicted to Percocets or whatever they're, whatever they're taking. And so I had by then had gotten in, into sobriety. And when I went to treatment, what I left out was I did not feel, did not feel, still don't feel that the FBI handled it correctly. Um, I, I think that the the model that they had when I raised my hand to get help, the, the, the separating people out that had alcohol, drug issues and became a discipline problem. Let's say they were driving a car drunk and uh, got into a domestic, got arrested, things like that. The way that you were treated and the, the way that somebody was treated for raising their hand was the same. And, and I, f- I felt like the whole period, that early period of sobriety, I felt like it was adversarial. I never felt like people were coming alongside me. I felt like it was like, if you do this again, you drink again, we'll fire mm-hmm. you. If you drink again, this is going to, ha- you know, it's just like all this bad stuff was going to happen. And I'm thinking, are you here to help me? Or are you, what is all this threatening stuff about? You know, and I, and I, I, it never sat well with me. And so that was in my mind. And I remember mm-hmm. talking to my boss at the time at the Academy and we would have these discussions. I would talk, I would openly talk about like, Hey, this isn't how you do this, guys. I mean, this is making it more, harder for me as opposed to better. And uh, she said to me, well, why don't you, all these discussions that we're having, um, have you thought about maybe developing a course for these folks at the National Academy to talk about your experience and to talk about you know, how things could have been handled better and how could the journey have been easier for you? And, and we did. And we, uh, we partnered up with the University of Virginia and mm-hmm. – uh, because they they uh, accredit all the classes at the FBI National Academy, and we did that, and we developed uh, uh, eventually developed a course called Leading at Risk Employees, which deals with programs, policies, procedures on what your agency should do, or what we would suggest that you do. Because mm-hmm. each state, each agencies, they're all going to have their own policies. You know, we can't dictate what you're going to do, but we we. We want you to think about certain things as you're writing your policy or changing your policy, updating policies, um, you know, take my experience and others' experiences and, you know, look at how, consider how your policies will affect your employee, whether, is, is it going to help them or harm them, th- those types of things. And we would get into these discussions. So the whole course was based around that. And it's still taught that way to this day. I unloaded 32 years of emotion. This job isn't a joke, and it can hurt you. How does yoga or meditation help with that? Coming to terms with who you are. You know, nobody calls us because they're having a good day. It's really the suicide that becomes a huge issue. People are more trustworthy with the dog. Sleep deprivation helps them either be better or worse. Completely secretive when we started this. So it's pretty much taboo. Take care of the people next to you first responders really being open about what they're struggling with. If we know that, let's raise awareness. Brings you together to talk about it, and it tells you you're not alone.
In addition yeah. to uh, policy, because I, I think this topic is super important for anybody who's in a leadership position or even wants to be promoted to that, uh, aspiring to be a leader in their department, is there a way that we can give these people, the leaders and the aspiring leaders, the tools to be aware of when somebody is struggling with a problem and then know what to do with that? Yeah, so number one, the, the course is still taught down there uh, mm-hmm. today. So if you're if you're a police officer, if you're a police executive and and you go to the, the National Academy, which is a great experience, uh, and you go to the National Academy, certainly sign up for that because mm-hmm. it's still taught there to this day. Uh, a lot of your National Academy retrainers around the country, you can Google that. And um, uh, th- th- those are designed for people who are graduates of the National Academy can attend. You know, each state will have a chapter. I, for example, I was just down in Alabama. I was down in Orange Beach uh, at their National Academy retrainer. I was in New Mexico mm-hmm. last year. But my understanding, now it's it's up to each chapter, but if, if you want to attend training that they have, my understanding is that you can go to that training. They may charge you for that. There may be a fee for it, but it's a good time to, and it's well worth it. They bring in some really good speakers. Uh, you can do that. Um, sometimes you can contact the academy and have the instructor that's there now uh, come out and teach you if they're available. Mm-hmm. You can contact me. I go out and I do training quite a bit with agencies. And interestingly, uh, on, on that note, after I retired from the FBI, I thought my days of even dealing with this stuff were, were over. I, I thought I was moving on to other things. And what had happened was I started working as a, as a contractor for one, for one of the agencies, uh, one of the federal agencies here kind of doing FBI type stuff. But uh, while I was doing that, you know, people would still call me and they would, you know, chiefs of police, sheriffs and, you know, firefighters. And they would say, Hey, uh, I got a, I got a person that needs to go to treatment. Where do you, where, where would you recommend? Hey, uh, what about this? Is this really a disease or is my guy just a bad guy? Is this a bunch of crap? You know, tell, explain this disease thing to me. What about progression? What about, what is IOP? My guy's talking about IOP. I have no idea what that is. So I get asked these questions and my wife would hear me on the phone talking to these people. And she said, she said, number one, you realize you have the same conversation like every single day with these people. And um, and she could also tell that I wasn't really happy. Like I had retired from the FBI, but yet I'm still doing that kind of work. And, you know, after like 30 some odd years, you know, I think she could tell that my heart wasn't really into it. But but she could tell that there was an interest in what I was doing on the, the recovery side mm-hmm. and that my heart really seemed to be in that. And so a couple of things happened. First, she said, hey, why don't you why don't you record this stuff, these answers? Because it's like the same questions every day. And put it onto a podcast and people could listen to it. And I said, hey, that sounds like a really good idea. What's a podcast? I had no idea even what that was. So we did that. And then and then the other thing was she said, have you ever thought about becoming a licensed counselor? And I had. And she said, uh, you know, why don't you look into that? And she looked into what that would require. And and I ended up in the Hazel and Betty Ford Graduate uh, School for Addiction Studies. And that's what I've been doing for about the last two and a half years. And so that was the start that we decided. I, I did that part-time, but part-time as a student, and then mm-hmm. decided I didn't want to take 10, year, <laughs> 10 years to finish that. <laughs> and so decided to do it full-time. And I, so I've been a full-time student. But uh, we do have the podcast, and I think we're up to about 109, 110 episodes as okay. of And share today. with us the name of the podcast? It's called Recovery is Possible. Recovery is possible. And it's on all the, the podcast. See, I know what podcasts are now. And they're on all the platforms. And um, it's kind of a mixture of educational um, 
things, you know, so like I talked about progression of addiction, you, you'll get some of the psychoeducation, but then there's a lot of really interesting interviews. I've, I've been blessed to stumble across some very, very interesting people, some pretty well-known people. And um, just did an interview this week with a very, very interesting individual. And, uh, you know, I, I just been blessed. I've, I've, I've been blessed and I'm glad that I'm doing this work and uh, get to meet people like yourselves and get to talk about what I believe is the number one health issue in the United States. Uh, COVID, I know COVID's gotten a lot of attention over the last two years. I, from my vantage point, from where I've been, the big issue in America today when it comes to health is addiction, mental health issues, PTSD, and suicide. Uh, mm-hmm. We have fentanyl pouring across the border. We have more fentanyl coming across this border every single month uh, well, you could kill every single American in the United States every month with the amount of hmm. – that's just fentanyl. That's not even throwing in the other drugs, but yet we don't talk about it. And I think that why we don't talk about it, a lot has to do with the stigma with addiction, mm-hmm. and that's, that's a big area that I have. You know, we um, – this is the disease that everybody experiences. Everybody knows – everybody knows somebody with an addiction issue, hmm. but it's the one thing we don't talk about. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk about COVID all day long. You're uh, right. I, and I think we agree with you on a lot of those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we're seeing here on the podcast. And that's what we're hearing responders tell us either in our office or in the peer support group that we run. Um, you know, I'm thinking you're being very open and honest and doing this out of pure passion. And I'm wondering what the response has been for you um, from your colleagues, from people that you've known across the decades. The, the, the response has been really good. I, you know, it's funny and I'm not condemning anybody because I was in the same boat that I remember when I first came into recovery, my goal was nobody needs to know about it. I Can I walk around society with a bag over my head and, you know, are there people following me out of a meeting? And what if I see somebody in a meeting that I know? And what I've learned over time is that people understand it. They really understand it. And if you're going to a meeting and you're afraid to go to a meeting, you don't be because it does. If you, first of all, if you meet somebody at a meeting, 12 step meeting, and they know you, you know, they're at the same meeting that you're at, right? So unless they were headed to a Walmart and took a wrong turn and somehow accidentally ended up in a room in a basement and decided to get a cup of coffee and a donut and sit there by complete accident, they're probably in the same boat that you're in. And so there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, a quick little story. When I first started teaching to, to show you like the reaction and how I didn't even realize at the time how much of an impact addiction had on other people. So I'm teaching at the FBI National Academy. And in the first couple of iterations of the course, uh, I, I just taught. I just taught about addiction. And I, I didn't tell my story because I had a, the wrong idea about the, the spiritual principle, the 12th uh, um, the spiritual principle of, of anonymity in, in AA. 
And I thought that that meant that you could never share outside of recovery circles your story. I've since found that that was that's not true, and that was never Bill Wilson's intent, one of the co-founders. Uh, but I didn't know that at the time. I had been sort of led to believe that that's what it was. So I didn't share my story. And uh, I had a couple of officers, several officers, as a matter of fact, come into my office one day, and they said, hey, you're in recovery, aren't you? And I'm like, hmm, why, who told you? And they're like, well, we don't know why you're not sharing that you're in recovery, but you know, you talk about brutal honesty, but you're not being honest with us. You're up there teaching. It's 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 obvious that you're this is your life, that this mm. isn't just something that you read about. Uh, but we don't know why you're doing that, but it's it's not good. And I remember I went home that night. Oh, on the way home, I was talking to my sponsor, and my sponsor says, Well, you know, I, I get it, and I, I feel for you, but, you know, we, we just don't talk about recovery outside of our circles. Sorry. So I go home and I talk to my wife, who's very active in family uh, wellness programs, and she understood it. And But, again, she had sort of the same thought process that I had was and, and been told the same things, and we didn't know what to do. And that night I, I sat down in the bedroom, and I'm watching the television, and it's one of those weird things, and, and I call it a God moment, where I'm flipping through the channels, and there's 700 channels of nothing on television. But And I just stop of, on one channel, and there was a, a documentary called Anonymous People. And if you've never seen that, I would recommend it. Highly recommend it. It's called Anonymous People. It's put up by a group called Faces and Voices of Recovery out of Washington, D.C. here. And the premise of the – or the thesis of this documentary was – one, addiction is the number one killer in, in the United States. Two, the people that know the most about how you can get help for addiction are trained to not talk about it. And I thought, oh, and I'm sitting there brushing my teeth going, oh, this is interesting. And they said, and then they went through the spiritual principle of anonymity, and they talked about how that's been, been misinterpreted. Over there. And I go, well, that's even more interesting. Hmm. And they said, well, how do the people that need to get well know where to get well if the people that got well never talk about it? And I thought, well, that's an interesting concept. <laughs> and then they go through and they, they highlight all these people that, you know, community leaders, uh, celebrities, sports figures, uh, political figures, all these people that are known that are in recovery. And they say, you know, because there's this myth that if you're an addict, you're living under a bridge and you're in a puddle of your own vomit. Um, that's maybe true in some cases, but that's actually not the vast majority of people. The vast majority of people that have addiction issues are highly successful people that others respect, community leaders. Mm -hmm. Right. And they demonstrate that in the video. So if you haven't right. seen it, I'd recommend it. And they said, you you really if you're in recovery, you should celebrate it. You should not be ashamed of it. And you should go out and tell others about it because other people need to hear about it. So my wife was sitting there and we were in the bedroom and she turned to me with her toothbrush and she goes, that. <laughs> and I went, what? And she goes, there's your answer right there. This can't be an accident. So I went in the next day and whatever we were scheduled to do with the class, you know, I told him to close the door and I said, you guys are going to listen to a story today. And I, I actually thought that was the end of my career at that point. I thought this is no, nobody in my world gets up and, and, and tells these stories. And, and I did. And, and I remember my suit uh, was just like, you could have wrung it out. I was so nervous. Mm. And, and cause I thought that was it, but do you know, to get back to your point, what was the reaction? They, the class lined up 
And to a person, they came up and it was like, hey, I really appreciate that story. That was really good. Uh, hey, my ex-wife, you know, I loved her to death, but she just couldn't get sober. We put her in treatment several times. Um, you know, another guy is like, hey, my son's in treatment right now. Or, uh, you know, one guy came up to me and said, hey, after what you said, I think I need to go talk to somebody. And then I had a guy actually hand me his his coin, uh, like a 25-year coin. And he, and he said, hey, I'm in the program as well. And then the next class I did that and I, it would shock me because you understand this is a hard crowd. These are all police executives. This is mm-hmm. not a huggy feely crowd, but, but that's when it really hit me that every single person in that room knows what I'm talking about. And then later I would ask these people, these police executives, how many of you, how many of you don't know somebody that has an addiction issue? And I've never, and I've talked to thousands of police officers and others in, in just the general public too. I've never had somebody that said, Nope, don't know what you're talking about. I don't know anybody. I've never met, not one, not one. We all know someone. So to answer your question, um, the reaction has been very, very positive. It really surprised me. I didn't, it, it's a bigger problem than I thought it was initially. It's very validating for others to hear that, right? Especially when you're someone who's in a position of power or you're teaching or you're a leader in some way in their eyes. And for them to see that you're not perfect and that you've had your own flaws and struggles, mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's just so sobering, mm-hmm. you know, to use a good addiction word. It's very sobering. <laughs> what you gave them is a gift. And I think yeah. all of us being honest is a gift. And by the way, I, I want to point out one thing too. And what what I try to get across to people is that th- this is not about you being a good person, a bad person, or a flawed person. It actually has nothing to do with your moral character. After all, you know, you can see I live in Virginia here. See, I'm sitting <laughs> in the woods. And when um, when things start to bloom, I have allergies. And when things start to bloom, and and I start you know, sneezing and coughing and and all those types of things. Imagine, if you will, if somebody were to come to me and say, hey, Mike, you know, when it starts to bloom here, you know why you're sneezing like that? It's because you don't love your wife enough. Um, You don't go to the gym enough. You don't spend time with your kids. You're not a good employee. And I would look at you and I'd go, "What what the hell does that have to do with anything? And the answer is nothing. And the thing is with addiction, and, and interestingly enough, in the doctor's opinion, it's a chapter in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. In the doctor's opinion, they they have a, uh, a there's a saying in there. It says that what we suffer from is an allergy to to alcohol. And at first, you think, well, that's ridiculous. You don't have an allergy. Well, Webster's Dictionary actually says that an allergy is the body having an abnormal reaction to a substance. That's what an allergy is. Hmm. And what it is is that my body pro- uh, processes alcohol differently than someone else that didn't doesn't have that genetic miswiring. And so when I drink, it's because my body reacts differently, and there's a euphoria that I experience that a non-alcoholic never. My wife does not experience alcohol yeah. the same way that I does that I do. And then my brain tells my body that, that not only is this not a bad thing, but it's a good thing, and we want more of it. And so it's an abnormal reaction. And and I have no control over that. I have no control over that. And me going to church more often, spending more time with my kids, becoming. But we all think that if we're just better people, that we can solve addiction. It has nothing to do. It, really, when you get down to it, it's just basic science. My body processes alcohol differently. Just like that kid over there can't eat peanuts. That kid over there can't eat shellfish. Uh, 
you know, if, if you're a diabetic, there's certain things you have to do. You just have to do it. I just have to not drink. But it has nothing to do with me being good or bad. Mm-hmm. And that that is probably one of the, the, the biggest messages that people need to hear, not only in this country, but in the world. But certainly in our profession, where in our profession, we're trained to be hard. We're trained to be tough that we don't have weaknesses and things like that. And the idea that, that people in our business look at alcoholism or addiction as a weakness needs to be shattered. It has nothing to do with being weak. It has everything to do with just your body processes. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. I just don't drink. That's a, I just don't. Well, Mike, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. And I thank you so much for sharing that perspective and that way mm-hmm. of looking at things differently. Also, the fact that you're so willing to be transparent and approachable about your alcohol experience and how that's affected your life. I think as leaders in emergency mm-hmm. services, um, the more we can do that, I think we're doing a service for our members and to help them, to give them mm-hmm. uh give them a role model that uh, they know they can come to you, speak to you if you have a problem and they'll understand what they're going through. As, as we wrap up, um, please let us know where can people find you out there, your podcast, your website, all that good stuff. Yeah. So the podcast is called recovery is possible Mm -hmm. and it is on all the podcast platforms that are out there. I also have a website and you can link through to the podcast through the website and the website is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com, vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And through there, you can you can email me. You can contact me. I, I'd love to talk to you. Love to hear from you. Uh, love to get suggestions. If mm-hmm. uh, if you'd like training, you know, we, we do that. I do go around the country, kind of fit it in when, when we can. Um, as we mentioned earlier, I'm about ready to finish this graduate program. And who knows where I'll be taken after that. But uh, I, this is what I do now. This is uh, this is my passion, as you can see, and uh, we we can do this. We can do this. And and if you're suffering from addiction, understand that there is help available, but just have a willingness to get well and and take the first step to to get better because you can because you can get better. Mike, thanks so much. Mm-hmm. I know that our viewers, um, they're going to really appreciate everything that mm-hmm. you said. And just hearing your raw words, I think will really mm-hmm. touch them. So I can't thank you enough. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Our pleasure. And uh, check out Mike's podcast and his website. And uh, I know he does amazing work as a trainer. I've seen a little bit of his work out there mm-hmm. with the Ohio State Police Um on video. So, uh, Mike, thank you so much for being with us, sharing your story and your wisdom and your experience uh, perspective. Thank you both. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you, Take Mike. Care. Bye-bye. Take care. Yep. Be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Respond to Resilience. We're on Facebook, Respond to Wellness Inc., bbsradio.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Our website is respondertv.com. Till the next time, stay safe, be kind to yourself. Take care. Mm-hmm.